0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by The Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan. Interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan, and if you are watching the video, we are are already being upstaged fabulously, and our guest will not only introduce herself, but also her dog, who is brilliant already and spectacular. My name is Alexis Boylan, and I am a professor of art history and Africana studies at the University of Connecticut. I am also the director of academic affairs at the University of Connecticut for our Humanities Institute, and I am. Finally, I'm very excited to be the curator of the exhibition and project Seeing Truth. And I am very excited today to be talking to an artist who I believe the first time I met her on Zoom I said, oh my God, I'm a huge fan and proceeded to fangirl out in a pretty embarrassing way. The opportunity to talk with and work with one of my favorite artists. So yeah, fangirled out. Had a, had a real T-Swifty moment about my guest. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself and I already sort of messed it up by announcing that you are an artist, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself. But before, I also just want to, as always, thank the Loose Foundation for their generous support of both the Seeing. Truth exhibition and the projects and dialogues that are accompanying it. So with that, Penelope, would you like to introduce yourself? Because I hate introducing people and because I also am always fascinated by what people say about themselves. Okay.
2: Well, when when you asked me to say who I was and what I do, I just was like, okay, well, I'm a person and I make
1: (laughs) You know what? All the facts are important. Give us the data that we need. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and I have a dog. Okay. Yeah. What is the
2: said dog's name? Just so we oh, that that was Franklin. If okay. Into the, into the video, you 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 met Franklin. Yes. Fabulous. He's now going for a walk.
1: So what do you do besides being Franklin's
2: caretaker, owner, buddy, and friend? What do I do? I teach and I make art and I show my work. And I also, you know, have a, a fairly well, consistent domestic life also, but that Mm -hmm. I, I wish I had more of that actually when I, yeah, anyway.
1: Yeah. So, so you are an artist. Do you want to tell people who are just becoming sort of acquainted with your work, the kind of work that you do and a little bit of your sort of story of even sort of becoming an artist? I'm going to ask you in a minute about sort of data stuff. So maybe don't dive right into that, but just sort of to give those who maybe don't have so much of a background who are not fangirls like myself, Mm -hmm. a little bit about sort of the kind of work you make.
2: Okay. How long do you want me to talk about that? Cause I could <laughs> go back
1: to when I was seven. You know That's the first and last question. And then we're totally done. No, just kidding. Like, like pretend
2: we're on an airplane. Okay. Like give me the airplane pitch. Oh, the airplane pitch. Okay. okay. Well, I'm a photo-based artist. Okay. And I mostly find images to use. And actually ever since I can remember, Like from the time I was little, I was making things with things that I found. So there is a kind of theme throughout my entire life of finding things and being kind of inspired by them and and not really understanding them. And through the working with them, understanding something about the world. So basically, I, I think about my process as being sort of like using the materials in the world to understand something about the world. Okay. Okay that's good that's a
1: good that's a good elevator pitch I got it okay so I'm going to actually now deep dive a little bit into that because the work that we're going to be showing in seeing truth and a lot of the work that you have really been focused on in the past couple of years has been around data and data that you've collected from the internet and I use those words like very advisedly or not advised by you but I'm, I'm using them very specifically to sort of provoke you into a certain conversation and and because I'm interested in sort of what a about the sort of visual world on the internet has become so provocative to you. And and what is it that you find about that data and that way of looking at data, visual data specifically that's interesting to you?
2: Visual data. I think that it has to do with the idea of the collective. So when when you see the same thing repeated Many times, you can start to understand something about who we are as human beings or who we are in a particular culture. So the more of something that I can find that is interesting, the more you know, the more material I have to work with, and the more it kind of points to something that reveals an aspect to our culture or humanity. And yeah, and it's interesting to think about, Data on the internet because it wasn't it wasn't actually that interesting to me until the internet became collaborative, right? Like when people could start posting stuff. So it's it's really you know before we had Instagram, before we had Flickr, before we had even people selling things on Craigslist and eBay, all the images, all all image production was either really personal and stayed in the home or it was corporate or, or commercial.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so what's really interesting right now, I think is that image production is more collective. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say democratic, right. there, this whole thing about democracy and the de- democratization of photography, which I actually think photography's actually in some ways become more tyrannical the medium Mm. itself, but, but everybody is using it and everybody's sharing what they, what they, what they photograph. So, and that ability to share and then find is really fascinating because it really tells us something about who we are, I think.
1: So I can't help myself. And I'm, I mean, I warned you that this was going to happen. So two questions to your answer. And the first is I find it really interesting that you in your answer about what you find provocative about visual data, you actually don't mention at all the object that is visualized. Like, mm. so I think after I became so sort of focused on the images that you were going to be so- showing in the show, I started actually following on Twitter, like a, like a, just a random, like images of the moon every day. And what I find interesting is that you didn't mention at all sort of like the subject being like the moon right. or the subject being earth or whatever that you are more interested in these images as evidence as opposed to of evidence of humanity than right. as perhaps objects yeah. of themselves. i
2: i'm sort of i'm more interested in okay. the images as a kind of currency in a way Right. And so actually the best example that I can use is the images that I work with that are from Craigslist and eBay, because those, those images are taken by sellers who want to sell the object. So the images themselves are not interesting to them, but the object is the important thing. And those images are just throwaway images. And to me, the object is not interesting at all, but the photograph is really interesting. So I get to use these photographs that were garbage basically Mm -hmm. to the, to the person who took them. And, and I think the same thing that happens with the work that I did with the moon and the sun and the, the other side of the moon sort of screen grabs. It's not so much the, the fact that it's an image of the moon. It's the fact that someone found an image of the moon and then made this effort to illustrate something and then share it so it had this kind of has this kind of currency to them not of the moon but of like what the image is worth Right or how the image can, can validate something.
1: Yeah. So, and now I'm going to push back to another point
2: you made, because I just
1: can't help myself. I want you to talk a little bit more about the tyrannical photograph. I have not heard. I mean, certainly there's a very long history of people thinking that photography has a tyrannical effect. Mm -hmm. I'm interested though, because that's not what it seemed like you were talking about. What it seemed like you were talking about is that in this historical moment, the medium and the ability to take photographs and they're not really photographs in any kind of like, you know, the technical, like to take so many images you seem to be suggesting is actually restricting our ability to maybe use that medium in new and creative ways. Is that how I understood my understanding? Well, yeah. you're
2: I, I guess what I meant was that there's a certain kind of assumed subjectivity and individuality and uniqueness to everybody's vision, right? So when you pick up a camera or your phone or whatever, and you want to take a picture, that inclination that or that need to take the picture is based on like, oh, I see something. That I want to either keep or I see something that I want to share because it's unusual. I have a good way of you know. There's a there's an element there's an ego element in it and a subjective element in it, or there's the assumed subjective element in it. And what's fascinating to me is you know, art photographers aside, most of the images that you see on Instagram or on Flick, what used to be you know the, the the early Instagram, which was Flickr and and basically any sharing platform follow script follow very specific scripts for taking photographs and so there's that element of the scripted photograph which is like the narrative that we we are trying to tell each other who we are or trying to tell each other you know i'm having this great time or whatever it follows these scripts that i kind i think are tyrannical
0: Mm. but
2: the other aspect of it is that all the technologies are only allowing us certain ways of photographing right right? so they're all you know they're exposing for certain things they're dictating basically how we photograph and they're dictating the look of the image so that's what I meant that yeah I'm not going to push on it because I feel like I would want to talk to you about that for hours because I do think that it it
1: runs into this really interesting conversation though about how free we're was photography really ever that we were always right. sort of like trapped by this technology that we may or may not sort of I think
2: that we were at some point invested and had a kind of active agency within mm-hmm. the process of making or taking photographs right. and I think now most people don't and you know I think the the job of the artist or the job of the photographer like professional photographers or you know people who have Who's live, you know? Who are invested in the medium? The job is to unpack what it, you know. There's no way now that we can know the mechanics of our of our phones or our cameras, right? Mm -hmm. Like we used to have boxes. We understood how the light came in and how the exposure was made, and we understood the chemicals that produce the image. And we, there's no way we can understand that now, but we can at least try to unpack it a little bit and sort of understand what the parameters are that we are working with but i would say that most of the photographs that we see online nobody understands that and nobody cares about that
1: right so, yeah it's interesting yeah.
2: as i said i could go
1: on but i'm going to i'm going to try to stick to the questions that are pertinent to the exhibition and that sort of thing one of the questions and themes of the seeing truth exhibition is the line between data supposition deduction and creativity and your work really pummels i think these ideas, like you force the viewer to think about things that are often given or not looked at or looked at for a specific reason and then sort of tossed away. But I, I was sort of wondering what what do you think lies between data, supposition, deduction, and creativity, and then what is it that you are looking to say between these spaces, and I'm thinking now specifically about the, the pieces that we're going to be showing and seeing truth, which focus on the sort of imagery of the moon and the sun and the repetition of those images. Mm. I'm interested in sort of what it is that you are looking to comment on in terms of sort of knowledge making, because I mean, so much of that information is sort of on the internet. And so many of those images are on the internet in this kind of educational capacity or NASA has put these images on the internet. And so I I guess I just was sort of wondering what, yeah, like sort of between the data and your process and creativity, but then also for what you want the viewer to have happen to them when they look at your work, like what, what are those spaces like for you?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I, I think that it starts from my own experience of those of the platforms. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think within the creative process, there's always a kind of reciprocal sort of symmetry that if if you as a, a maker are discovering something, then hopefully your viewer is also discovering that along with you. Right. So for me, the 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 work that's in the show in this exhibition part of it is is a discovery of the form of the moon within a search platform. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not even really thinking about the internet as much as I'm thinking about the platform on the internet and how the platform subjugates, I guess, or how the platform organizes natural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So the natural phenomenon are the pictures of the moon. And then it's organized within this kind of search platform in this kind of array grid that that denaturalizes it and then i guess the dark side of the moon or the other side of the moon is just a kind of fascinating subject on a on a screen because a screen is all about visibility and like access And then there are people that are posting images that they found of the other side of the moon and then making all these kind of diagrammatic markings about UFOs and aliens and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I I guess I was just immediately fascinated by that, right? Like that people were doing that. And then also just the form of how that, you know, if you did a search of it on various platforms, you get these different kinds of gridded forms that that presents that material to you in this kind of graphic array mm-hmm. and that graphic array of that platform to me is also really fascinating because it's like this underlying structure that you know in the same way that we don't know what's inside our phones we don't really think about the structures of the web as being influential in how we think about nature for instance right. you know or yeah well, the algorithms are already pitched i mean if we're like doing a
1: google image search they're already they're already arranged according to the searches we've done before who google has imagined that we are and it's not even imagined like who they actually know that we are based on all of the other i mean it's interesting because it does seem like a through line is your interest in um actually what knowledge we're even able to access that, that that you're suggesting in a number of your pieces, but also in your sort of suggestion about the tyrannical nature of photography that we don't even know what we're not, what we're allowed to see and not see because so much of it is being invisibly formed for us. And I do think that it's interesting because your work then plays so much with repetition. Mm-hmm. So again, the sort of like the sort of dulling of our senses almost to what we're being given, I think is also this component of your work that I find really sort of fascinating. Interesting. I'm interested to sort of think about how you then think about sort of like scientific work. And I mean, NASA is on this massive project right now. And if you follow, like I am a nerd and I follow NASA on Instagram and the images are, are phenomenal. They do nothing to really talk to us at all about how they've created these images and they do sort of pass them off as like these are like yeah photographs of you know a, of space and you know not even anywhere suggesting that they've manipulated color that they've actually invented the color because all they have is data. I mean what what do you feel I mean and in that sense I'm like well if NASA is a creative artist then like, does that displace you? Like where, or are you now a scientist, right? No, think, what you that, study is yeah. data retrieval.
2: Yeah. I think we have to sort of, you know, this question gets asked to me a lot, you know, am I a curator? Am I an archivist? Am I a collector? And and then now you're adding, are you a scientist? <laughs> are they an artist? You know, and I, I think that one thing that you have to keep in mind or one should keep in mind. And what I always say about my own work is that those are all processes for me. Like I, Mm -hmm. the process of archiving or the process of looking at archives or the process of collecting and aggregating the process of curating the images that I collect, those are all means to an end. And then the end is something very specific. And it's like, you know, how do I push and massage and tease out and, you know steep and you know do all those kinds of things that that push a certain kind of way of thinking and way of working with materials that is how i do you know it's like my my work which i which i have no problem authoring right like that's my authorship in that work even though multiple people have authored the images that i'm using they can easily translate into my own work because Because as I said earlier, they're kind of scripted. I think that, you know, when we talk about NASA, yes, they are coloring, but they're coloring in service to something completely different, right? Like it's not, it's not an artwork that they're making. It's a, it's, it's for the purpose of illustration. It's for the purpose of, yeah. Yeah. So that's how I would distinguish how, yeah. (laughs) No, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I,
1: I would argue I think you're being very kind to NASA but so I'll say there's something about those images that actually really reminded me when you were talking earlier about like the Etsy shots or the Craigslist shots that there's something that is kind of like this is what awesome space looks like that is sort of meant to sort of elicit this thing where you like look past maybe like what are the specifics of this? And that you're just supposed to instead focus on being sold this idea of space, right, right, right. you know, and again, I think because, well, there's lots of reasons because, but I think that, you know, it's not unrelated to a longer history of conquest and colonization. And yeah,
2: that exactly. That so. And I think that's, that's really fascinating to me, especially when it comes to, you know, some of the, well, just these, I, these illustrations that I'm using in the, in the, the screen grab prints that I made, there's something about naming and putting your mark on those images that is, is almost colonialist, right? So yeah. like the whole Google moon project in some ways is a kind of colonialist project. And, and definitely you could say NASA is and although you know we really love it (laughs) it's like really great (laughs) well they sell it right like what's not to what's not to love
1: if you look at those photographs right they're using some strategies I mean not to be all art historical about it but some of these
2: strategies are 19th century landscape you know
1: strategies like
2: right they're coloring them to make them beautiful and seductive but I I still think it's for a different reason right like I'm not trying to sell well I'm I would love to sell my work, but I'm not selling a whole, well, you know, I mean, we could say that there are kind of similarities to, to the idea of convincing the worth of the work, right? Like convincing an audience that the the work that NASA is doing is worthwhile convincing another audience that the work that I'm doing is worthwhile.
1: But I think you are also, I mean, your images won't, Loose the viewer from thinking about where, from whence, where do all these images come from? What is my relationship to this technology? I think, I, you know, I think
2: I think that's important in my work.
1: Actually, it's absolutely like- yeah. No, that is like the the thing that I think is really provide. It's why I actually a little bit bristled when you said like, oh, some people say I'm just a collector. Like, so hmm. much of what you do is push us to think about a. Co- a collective mm-hmm. way in which we all sort of take in these materials and digest them or don't. And, and the way that we are voracious for them. And then, and then also for images also. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, no, absolutely. Well, I guess that's what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and the next question i have is going to be a little bit afield, field and this is going to be very particular to i have to say an article that came out this week i was writing the questions for you and and just also fuming about the new york times has literally for the past like i don't know it feels like every every week they have an article and the variation of it is is that um these new AI, AI art production, AI art aggregators are destroying all things about artists. And then, you know, so like a couple of weeks ago, it was like somebody won an art contest in like Des Moines with an AI, you know, like they they typed in seven words or whatever, and an AI image came up and that's what won. And so, you know, art's dying. And then this week's thing was like, well, some artists say that they are going to be able to use this AI. Like it was sort of like, then it was like, okay, let's like, we're still narrating a, a total like apocalyptic narrative about creativity and artists and the hand.
2: But so we've been doing that for centuries too, right? Every new time. Right. right.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's all downhill from, from yeah. like starting back right away. Rest. Yes. Okay. But I was actually just sort of wondering I mean, they love their dramatics, but you actually use this technology in a very different way and not this technology. But I am really interested in how you feel about, you know, because this technology is about Sort of what you do, and then dissolving all of the ideas that you, all of the critical inquiry that you put into it, and then just are sort of like, look, this is all, you know, like you said, hot dog and yeah. Trump. And so I've made you this Trump hot dog thing. And also this sort of way of imagining that one could utilize all the images that exist in the world and therefore have all the sight in the world and therefore. I guess monetize it or democratize it or any of the other sort of utopian or dystopian words you want to attach to it so I was actually just sort of wondering if you would speak to that a little bit and again I know that that's not exactly your wheelhouse but I actually do think that it made me think a lot about your art and the way in which you think a lot and push audiences to think a lot about like, how, how do I even get in to see an image?
2: Right. I mean, I think a lot of people ask me about, you know, what I think about AI and I actually, I'm just fascinated by it. (laughs) Like really fascinated. And I love all the crap that's coming out of it as well as sort of the interesting things. I mean, I think that it could be really problematic, but it could also be really amazing in the future, you know, like, once it becomes smarter or whatever, I, and I think it's true of all all technologies. Like, there's a lot of crap and bad stuff that happens with every single new technology, right. and there's also good stuff. So I I love that you say, and and because I never thought about this before, but that yes, it, you know the the way we think of AI right now, especially image AI, is is aggregating all the images, which is kind of what I do too. But I have to say that like one of the things about what I do from the very beginning, people had asked me, do I use search algorithms? Do I, you know, there's like, there are a number of different apps that I could use to find whatever it is that I'm looking for. And one of the things that is so fundamental to the way I work is that I'll be working on something and I'll see something and I'll go, wait, what? And I'll then start to dig into that and, if it has a a kind of psychological or emotional or cultural resonance that I can't figure out, but that's really fascinating, I'll work on something for eight or nine months before I even know what it is that I'm doing. And it has to have that kind of depth of weirdness, you know, like either psychological or whatever, in order for me to even sustain that practice around that subject for that amount of time. And I think that's the biggest difference between what I do and what like an AI or a search algorithm could do. And that is that, you know, it's, it's one thing to get all the images. It's another to really question a kind of image and then, feel it, like really feel the weirdness of it and then make work coming out of that. I love,
1: I I love your sort of suggestion that it's not about like fixing an algorithm because it's like such a, I mean, there's a kismet to that too. Right. I mean, I imagine that it depends on like what kind of a day you're having and how has Franklin been that like, that actually it's all of
2: these mysterious other things that collide Mm -hmm. with us. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit deeper than the kind of day that I was going to see. Oh yeah. 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 No, but I just, I'm, but I mean, yeah, well, okay. I did. I mean, two of the projects I could just speak to right now that really started off from personal experience, very, very early project was these mirrors from, from catalogs. And it was before the internet and the only images that I had to work with really were commercial images. And I, you know we I've been getting like these these home decor catalogs that you know these companies send to you and I had stacks and stacks of them and I'm like what there's got to be something here that I can work with right. and then one day my bathroom mirror broke it just fell and shattered all over the floor and I was like you know I cleaned it up and then I didn't replace the mirror for a couple of weeks and and every time i go to wash my hands, I'd look up and I really had this strong sense of disappearance. Like I was like, whoa, I just disappeared because I so used to just seeing myself when I wash my hands. And and so that started this project of looking through the catalogs at the mirrors, because when you look in those catalogs at those mirrors, nobody's in them. So you have this, I blew them up and I'm, and you, you stand in front of them and you are disappeared. So and I guess the reason I'm telling you about this project is that for me, that is where it starts. It's like a feeling and an experience, and it's not just simply wow. I could get three thousand images right. if I went to look for this. It it starts from this, you know, like investigation that has to do with a relationship to something that I'm having online, or yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think, I think I misspoke when I was sort of suggesting like, it's, it's nothing as like banal as like, like just in my day, but I actually think I I use that because
2: it is that actually, Yeah, but I think that it's the
1: banalness of actually our humanity, right. Of like, of, of the day of just all of those small pieces that come together and also the, the sort of the whole process of the, the conscious and the unconscious. I do think that sort of the interesting discussions about AI are about sort of like what is conscious and what is unconscious and and what you know what what might be happening within the algorithms that have maybe different layers to them but yeah, yeah. so you personally as an artist are not feeling the New York Times hasn't gotten you all hyped up you're not you're not you're not frightened of AI do you have, no. have the
2: have you played around with any of the I've been playing around with them for a long time, like just the very beginning ones, like, you know, mainly because I teach and my undergrad students are fascinated right. by that. So they often come in with these projects right. and then I'm like, oh, what app is that? Or, oh, what what right. platform was that? And so we, we fool around with it a bit. And then I fooled around a little bit with Dali, but I just thought it, I don't know if Dali or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. I did actually, you know, take a few screen grabs of what they thought a cat was. Mm. Just, like you just put in one, you know, like and thought, maybe I'd do something with that, but like, eh, you know, like right. if you put in the most banal thing, like just one thing and you get, you get a bunch of things that don't look at all like that thing, you know, right. that's kind of right. fascinating to me, the failures. I mean, all of the work that I, well, a lot of the work that I am um, focused on, are the failures of the technologies that we use. So yeah. Right. Sort of this the 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 slip between the desire
1: and then the reality of it.
2: Right. So and the, and the promise of of what it can do for you and and then just letting it not do that. And then <laughs> Yeah, no,
1: it's funny. I saw a thing that was like all this time, and we still have Microsoft Word, like that. That's still <laughs> the best,
2: you know. Like it, it is
1: the sort of like, oh right, you know. Like right. it.
2: And then um, my favorite thing to do with Word is to put an image in it and ask it to tell me, you know, tell the the picture description. Oh yeah, that's always really hilarious.
1: <laughs> so I'm gonna pivot you. We've been asking everybody this question about the instigator items for the show because. As you know, your pieces are going to be sitting and living with and inhabiting space in in a constellation and environment with a number of pieces from the American Natural History Museum and the images that we picked as instigator items. So I was wondering if any, how do I want to phrase this? If any item instigated you towards happiness or sadness, anything provoke you or any of the instigator items you couldn't stop looking at or that you didn't want to ever see again?
2: Okay. Well... I have to say that I very quickly looked at them because I didn't really wasn't paying attention to emails for a couple of days, and I immediately was drawn to the little blue box with the polar bears inside. Okay. And I think it's partly because when I had kids, well, I have kids, but they're grown up. But when when my kids were little. We made so many boxes like that. We made so many little dioramas. And I did a project at a public school, one of the percent for art projects where I had the kids make dioramas. So I have a very close relationship to the making of dioramas, actually. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think is really fascinating is because I've been thinking about this, like how would I justify thinking about that diorama in relation to my work, not in relation Mm -hmm. to my kids or a project that I did with kids. And, And that is that I think with all of my work, There's an element of categorization and Mm -hmm. compartmentalization, which Mm -hmm. probably has a lot to do with language, like how we think conceptually, but, but then gets, gets sifted through the kind of formal ways that I work and, and that little box with the polar bears in it is the epitome of like categorizing and boxing information, right? It's like this whole little world inside there, which is not unlike the screens that we're looking at right now. Like you're in a little box world and I'm in a little boxy world and every window on a screen is one and all the little squares on image platforms are little boxes. So I picked that image.
1: I mean, I think (laughs) it's great because I think I think it totally, you're also like, you're hitting on that, the thing. I mean, that, in, that little box is also supposed to teach children how to go to museums. Yeah. And what to look for, like, how do you, you know, what does a, what does an educational space of a polar bear look like, you know, and so you're already being taught to do this sort of associative, disassociative Mm -hmm. moment, which I think is, I mean, I do think that that actually really does relate to your work and this sort of like, how are we being pushed into having certain, and then I mean, I'm thinking now about the people who then draw on the images and sort of insert their ideas. Like, how do we resist the images that we are given and make something else or try to sort of recreate
2: or or celebrate those images? I mean, that's the other things. And I I, I think what you just said, resist is exactly that, that what I was talking about before, the thing that allows me to stay with something so long, it's got to have both, right? Like you look at it and you're critical of it, but you also just love it. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's got to love it. Or you just are miserable if you're gonna right. spend eight months working on something. Right. But you also have to question it, like really deeply question it. So, right. and I think that little box is like that for me, it's like, you know, why do we put animals in boxes? Why do we make these dioramas? It's so stupid and so weird on the one hand. On the other hand, it's so great, it's like so fantastic. Right, and people literally travel all over the
1: world to go to the American Natural History Museum to see see the little box that they have been so prepped to see in various ways. No, I love it, and I will say, if you go on the website, there's this fabulous picture of the little truck that was made to take the little boxes around to school children all over New York.
2: Yeah, I saw that.
1: I mean, I, of course, was like, do we still have the truck when we don't? But I just, I love the idea of actually then creating a vehicle. A museum. Yeah, exactly. With the exact purpose of sort of recreating this sort of dioramas and that sort of thing. But this is a perfect moment to segue to our last question. And everybody hates this question, but I think this question is very instructive. And you're not allowed to answer more than one truth, but I want you to tell me one thing that you know is true a truth about the world and then how do you know it's true and what evidence or data do you have about its truthful oh, you
2: said about the world cuz in the I saw the question and I was like oh well this is a nice recursive ending and just like okay I know that I am a maker <laughs> and You can say that though. That's a truth that you know. That is a truth. The evidence is that I make things. Then you know what? It is the truth of you
1: that you are a maker. And that it is also the truth of you that that is how you've tried to find a way out of the question. That I find to be the most interesting part is how everybody tries to sort of make, you
2: know, I don't really know any truths about the world, right? Like, you know, I, I, well, you know, one, apparently, you know, a truth about yourself and you are in the world. So,
1: yeah. I have a dog. I think it's a perfect way to start and end with the only things that either of us know are that we have dogs.
2: I'm not even sure I'm a person, right?
1: Like, you're a person, you're a maker, you have a dog. I a brain in a vat. I might <laughs> not know it. <laughs> you know what? There actually will be specimens in the <laughs> exhibition. So it has been a joy to talk with you, Penelope. Thank you so much. And again, I just want to remind everybody that you get to see Penelope's amazing work that is being constructed right now. I just saw the emails flying past at the Scene Truth exhibition, which opens at the Benton on January. January 19th. Super excited. And thanks
2: again, Penelope. Thanks for having me. It was fun talking to you. Take care. Okay. Bye.
0: You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.